Hey gang, I'm Nick. And I'm Mike, and we are the producers of Lost Notes. Yep, and we have good news and some bad news. We have bad news? Well, not exactly, but this is not a new proper episode of Lost Notes. Ah, yes, that is technically true. (laughs) But we do have new episodes coming, that's good news. We're working on a bunch of new stories right now, and we'll tell you more about them very, very soon. But in the meantime... In the meantime, we thought we'd spend our off time sharing some of our favorite stories from elsewhere in the podcastosphere. Yep, and uh, this first one's really, really great. It comes from one of our very favorite radio producers, probably anywhere... Anywhere indeed. Eleanor McDowell, take a bow. She is part of Falling Tree, a company in the UK that produces so much good work for the BBC and other folks. And she herself is one of the best music documentarians out there, in my humble opinion. She's, yeah, totally. And this one, though, is a little different from anything we've done before, certainly. It's called Mad About the Boy, and Eleanor made it with her friends Ruth Barnes and Jude Rogers, both of whom are super talented writers and producers in their own right. And together they explore pop music and fandom and the sometimes literal madness that goes down between artists and people who love them the most. Yeah, I really had fun listening to it and uh, hope you like it too. And if you do, definitely go check out the rest of their archive. It's at fallingtree.co.uk and subscribe to their podcast, maybe too. Why not? It's one of our favorites. It's called Shortcuts. And here is Mad About the Boy, presented by Ruth Barnes and Jude Rogers. I think it's a dress rehearsal for love. I think you're in love with the idea of being in love. You know, John, I'm very, very glad that you sang that. Jolly good, really. Yes, I'm particularly glad for Gwendolyn Hopkins, because she says that she wouldn't love you anymore if you hadn't sung it. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Because <gasps> it's just told me I'm cute. I died on the spot. Yeah, I actually, I think they will be the death they of have. me. Because <laughs> they're just so perfect. <laughs> it really hurts. <laughs> Because they're so beautiful. Our babies will be beautiful, basically. Yeah. I dream about that every night. <laughs> my kids, yeah. I drew a picture about my kids. <laughs> we came here at 6 o'clock in the morning, fast, and I didn't even see them, and all they do is push you farther and farther away. And then they don't even let you see them. <laughs> oh, what's the matter, baby? So, Ruth, tell me about your first great love. Well, he was a bit of a bad boy, Jude. He smoked, which I thought was very exotic and very rebellious. He had dark hair cut in a sort of, well, I guess you could say a pudding bowl shape. He'd also been dead for about 15 years. What? (laughs) John Lennon, of course, who was my major crush, bizarrely, as a teenager. I loved the Beatles. I was fed up with the boys that I knew at school and around me in in my peer group were just so dull compared to the bad boys of, of 60s pop and rock and especially John Lennon. It's bizarre because I think I loved John Lennon as well, only in a certain period of his life. I think from 1961 to 64, to be precise, before he started growing his hair a little bit too long and that kind of terrifying beard. And then he started going out with Yoko Ono and it all unravelled for me. I genuinely find it fascinating to go back and to remember the stories I told myself about him and about our life together and the incredibly detailed embroidery of it. This is journalist and novelist Alison Pearson, who wrote a book inspired by her love of David Cassidy, I Think I Love You. I think in about 1973, I fell head over heels in love with David Cassidy. Uh, Like any fan, I thought I was the only girl who loved him. 
and I made quite kind of detailed plans about our life together. You know, we were going to be getting married on a beach in Hawaii and he was going to be singing Cherish to me on the beach. And I was very worried about my footwear because I thought, am I going to have to get special flip-flops for the marriage to David Cassidy? Um, and I think then you realise that there are millions of other girls who also share this magnificent obsession, really, and are in love with him as well. When you're young, you don't necessarily think that anybody feels the same way as you do. You know, only you could feel this way about this pop star. Only you could invent this sort of world. But as you get older, you realise what a universal experience this is. I've got to admit, the same thing happened to me. My first love was Adamant in the video to his pop song, Prince Charming, swinging on a chandelier towards me, not to anybody else, towards me. He was my first great love. Exactly. They're, they're the one that you'll always have, even though the boys in the playground don't want you. You'll always have Adamant and I always have John Lennon. They're ours. It's quite the thing, isn't it, is to laugh at the sort of teen fans or to mock their naivety and so on. But obviously I did a lot of research for my book, which is about a girl who's obsessed with David Cassidy. And I thought how under the froth there's actually very profound feelings going on. And this boy pop star, they're quite sort of unthreatening. So they're a place you can put these burgeoning feelings in puberty into a safe place. You know, I mean, I know some of the older girls in my era were liking sort of, you know, Mick Jagger or Mark Boland. But I always remember thinking if you had one of those posters on your wall, they'd come out of the poster and try and do something dirty with you. Uh, Whereas you could rely on David and Donnie to just sort of come and have a nice conversation with you about what was your favourite song of theirs, I think. You don't know how many times I wish that I had told you You don't know how many times I wish that I could hold you You don't know how many times I wish that I could mold you Into someone who could cherish me as much as I cherish you So I'm interested in the phenomenon of the female fan, you know, being a female fan myself. But I'm also fascinated by the way in which female fans are perceived by the outside world. We're not generally perceived in a very healthy way. Madness, hysteria, all those kind of words. Shrieking. Shrieking. All those words are used when describing female fans. And I was one of them as a teenager. Another of the bands that I was very obsessed with was a band called Indecent Obsession. This is the equivalent of a comeback for the band, by the way, being mentioned on Radio 4. (laughs) And it summed up, really, I think, what people thought about, in a way, teenage girls and this crazy love that we had for this band that's seen as indecent. It's seen as something bad. It's seen in a negative light. When you read about One Direction fans at concerts, only police cordons with locked arms can hold these screaming wild fans back. There was a big piece about One Direction's film last year in a a men's magazine. They were called, you know, rabid, nicker-wetting banshees who would tear off their own ears in hysterical fervour when presented with the objects of their fascinations. Men have experiences of fervour and excitement in their lives. Go to any football game, there's 90 minutes of men screaming, wailing, you know, 90 minutes at a One Direction concert, a Frank Sinatra concert. It's sort of the same thing. So why is it that girls aren't looked at in the same way? We know that we had these sensations going through us, but The fact that people say that they are bad is kind of a lot to do with society's fear of the sexuality of young girls and the emergence of that sexuality. A male writer who went, I think, for the New York Times to a Frank Sinatra concert in New York, he said, 
It was like Christians being fed to the lions, these young lionesses. And I think he was obviously absolutely terrified by this sort of seething young womanhood, that primitive young female power. I mean, there is a roar of sexuality. You know, it's definitely about burgeoning female sexuality asserting itself. When I interviewed David Casty, I said to him, what do you think? I mean, he used to hide in the boots of cars quite regularly and he could remember being in a limousine where they the car had broken down and they just crawled over the car and they were pounding on the roof. And I said, what do you think they'd have done if they could have got to you? And he said he thought they would have wanted to take something back as a trophy to kind of hang on the bedroom wall. And he was terrified, actually. And it was interesting for me as a fan to to think of what it was like on the other side to, to be this person who could trigger this. Maybe, Ruth, something that people don't like about young girls going through these experiences is that they are quite threatening. Think about what young women used to do. They used to kind of fight policemen when they were about 12 or 13 years old. They used to silence their favourite band so they couldn't hear themselves playing. The potency behind that is quite incredible, really. And I think that's what terrified commentators because the commentators would always talk about these episodes with language of fear and language of it's out of control and language of something is wrong here. The fans now don't seem to care about the cold itself. They just yell and yell. I asked one or two girls what happened. And why, why did it speak? Why did they yell? You officers that are stationed behind the barricade, you will go to the first aid man and he will furnish you with earplugs so as to keep you from having a headache. They're yelling. Tremendous roaring sound. They're clustered here like the starlings around Trafalgar Square. They're clinging to every ledge and every balcony of this Queen's building. Some brave volunteers among the British police elect to act with heroism above and beyond the call of duty and escort the Beatles to their car. I'm just trying to get myself into a better position here. With one foot against the railing, pushing against this mass of frenzied fans as they push forward themselves to get a closer view. When you look at photos of even like Beatlemania, you know, the girls behind the barriers and looks of real sorrow and passion on their faces. I mean, it's it's quite striking. And I think it, it's easy to say, oh, it's just silly screaming girls. But obviously it taps into something very deep in the young female psyche. And I think a lot of this extreme fandom is a, about finding somewhere to put these unmanageable adolescent feelings. There has to be something positive in there. There's a celebration in there somewhere of girls together screaming, finding their voice, exploring their sexuality. Surely that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the sort of Malcolm Muggeridge pundit sort of area, it was all going to hell in a handcart. And, you know, the, the flower of English woman would go into pop with these strange men with long hair and funny outfits. And, you know, they're never going to grow up. They're never going to get jobs. They're never going to be fit to be anybody's wife. Sadly, we all grow up. This is one-time Beatlemaniac and my mother-in-law, Lillian Adams. And there certainly was hysteria. You know, girls chasing cars down the street and trying to knock off policemen so that they would get them out of the way. I, I don't think that had been happening for Cliff Richard somehow. Did you do this, my mother-in-law, dear? <laughs> I couldn't possibly <laughs> so incriminate are... myself at this stage. <laughs> you know, yes. Yes, you did. Yes. So t- tell me what that was like. Were you frightened about whether policemen might pick you up and throw you into you know, no. the back of the car? And t- or oh, no. If there was a policeman in front of you and you felt that you, know, you had to kind of push past them, you weren't scared about trying to do that? 
No, not at all. Why not? You know, they were all kind of middle-aged men like your dad and what were they going to do to you? Hundreds and hundreds of squawking teenage girls and this thin blue line of policemen. <laughs> One, two, three, five! I suspect they were more frightened than we were. I don't think we would have heard any of the songs at all. I mean, they only had to move and there was yelping and howling and they were being bombarded with jelly babies because at some point they said that they liked jelly babies. So that, unfortunately, most people actually thought to take them out of the boxes or the bags so that it was individual sweets. But, I mean, some people were actually throwing the boxes. It was just... I guess it's something like a football crowd is today. You're there with hordes of people who were all there for the same purpose you know you're all totally committed to this one thing that's in front of you and it's just wonderful there goes the chant now we want Paul we want the Beatles and one really important part of this relationship that people like my mother-in-law had with bands like the Beatles was that there was this real liberation that came with it you know this is the first time that young girls were expressing themselves en masse in a way that was obviously sexual in one way or another. There's a really fantastic American culture critic, Barbara Ehrenreich, who's written about this. She wrote that to abandon control, to scream faint, to dash about in mobs, was to protest the sexual repressiveness of female teen culture. It was the first and most dramatic uprising of women's sexual revolution. I think that's something that's really not recognised with young women, that is part of this self-expression and this realisation of your own identity, really. It's interesting because the language around it is always this idea that an out-of-control, in adverted commas, group of young girls is something terrifying that needs to be silenced, really. Whereas, actually, I think what what is important here is that it's an end to passivity. It's girls finding their voice and, more importantly, screaming. I think the scream at the heart of these experiences for young girls is really quite crucial. When's the last yeah. time you stood and screamed? It was so liberating. It's expression wonderful. is taking yourself out of your normal world. It's kind of taking you away from that world in your home, in your normal life. It's your world where you're kind of going through these changes. You're becoming an adult, but you're being allowed to do something about it. I think most people who are having a full-on screaming session at a gig somewhere will go outside, have a bit of a weep, have a moan with their friends, and that's it. And it's a rite of passage, it's just something you do. Looking back, I do actually think it's a very safe place to try out your growing-up sexuality. You know, the interest in a bloke who's probably 300 miles away and who always sounds like a really nice person when you hear him on the radio or you read anything that's written about him. It's, I suspect, much better than the bloke in the bus queue because the bloke in the bus queue is either going to upset you or take advantage. I mean, at 13, if you're thinking about Paul McCartney, you can fantasise to your heart's content. (laughs) Who was your favourite Beatle when you were 13? It was indeed Paul McCartney. Oh, yes. I mean, as I recollect... Wendy liked George Harrison and Pat liked John Lennon and, as ever, Ringo was left in the cold. (laughs) Poor old Ringo. Yes. (laughs) 
right in the middle of a good dream. So Ruth, we're a bit too old for this kind of thing, aren't we? We're in our 30s. We should be over this, but there's something about that fan experience that brings us back. It's like your very first love affair. You can't deny that what you go through as a teenage girl stays with you for life. I think I love you. This morning I woke up with this feeling I didn't know how to deal with And so I just decided to myself I'd hide it to myself And never talk about it But Ruth, let's be honest I did, like you, enjoy that wonderful period of falling in love with a safe, lovely boy But the music industry is not that innocent, is it? It's cynical It knows what's going on The courtship is engineered by the record labels. You know, songs might be written to make girls want to go and, you know, break open their piggy banks, as I used to do, and buy a cassette. Young girls do know a lot of the time that they're part of this exchange, they're part of this courtship. They have more intelligence, I think, than that people would credit them for. But sometimes it's very easy to get lost in that fantasy and end up spending that money and getting part of that corporate machine. The official David Casty magazine would come into the local newsagent about once a month and was like the Dead Sea Scrolls, really. And uh, we would hoover it up and believe, you know, every single word of it. Of course, I latterly discovered that most of it was being made up by people living in London. When I did get to meet David Cassidy, I had lived for about 18 months of my life just wearing only brown because I knew that was his favourite colour. And of course, I was very, very peaky blonde girl and I looked just hell in brown. But I knew it was his favourite colour. It was very important to be wearing brown when David came to South Wales to propose to me. Fast forward 30 years and I went to interview him. Of course, I wore brown because, you know, obviously that was very important to make the right impression. And I said to him, can I just confirm that your favourite colour is brown? And he looked at me in absolute bewilderment and he said, Alison, what kind of person would have a favourite colour that was brown? So that was obviously completely made up. In I Think I Love You, I talk about the way that the people in London who don't even know anything about David Cassidy or writing these fanzines, which we were solemnly reading in South Wales and taking as the God's own truth, you know, and that of course, there was vast commercial exploitation and David Casty was part of that. I mean, he did well, but not as well as the people who exploited him. And we were being exploited as well. And I, and, and I, and I do feel that, you know, lies were sold to us, but we were, we were willing consumers of the lies, I guess. But let's not forget that this is a vast global industry. The amount of money that's made now out of the Biebers and the One Directions and so on is, is phenomenal. So... The young female is a, you know, is a huge source of revenue. Her tenderest and most anxious feelings, the source of enormous amounts of cash. I'm, I'm very in touch with my inner, like, 13-year-old girl. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I remember um, how intense every single emotion was and it was just all life and death and it was so agonizing and beautiful and like life is still like that but I guess I've just calmed down a bit. This is singer-songwriter Fiona Bevan who co-wrote one of One Direction's biggest hits Little Things. There is a worrying trend in pop to trade off the insecurities of the fan base. I mean, when we wrote Little Things, one of the reviews sort of accused us of cataloguing somebody's 
flaws and picking out, you know, their imperfections in quite an anti-feminist way. Whereas, of course, the song really is saying, I love you because of these things, all these little things. And that's, that's what makes you unique and special. I know you've never loved The crinkles by your eyes When you smile you've never loved Your stomach or your thighs The dimples in your back At the bottom of your spine But I'll love them endlessly Some of the lines in the song tap into quite a dark psychology which a lot of women and girls have which is to do with knowing their perceived flaws and the song taps into those things and just says all you know all the things that you hate about yourself are actually the quirky cute things that I love about you um, and I think that's a very powerful sentiment I know you never loved the sound of your voice on tape you never want to know how much you ate you still love to squeeze into your jeans but you're perfect to me it's like the kind of song that girls want boys to sing them, which is why it worked for 1D. And it's definitely one that, the, you know, their audience responded to really strongly. It's you, they add up to, I'm in love with you. I mean, some might say that that's a very one-way relationship, but because of the reaction of the fans, it becomes this incredible dialogue between the artist and the fans. They're a One Direction on stage, singing little things in sort of ballad mode. You can't even hear the song because the girls are screaming so loud. But th that's, their, that's their duet, that's their dialogue with each other. Every single girl in the room feels that that song is literally written and sung for them and to them. I'm in love with you And all your little things what on earth could it be like to be on the other side, to be on the receiving end of this adulation and outpouring of love and emotion and hormones? I can't imagine. I guess we're going to have to ask one of these boys that we used to be mad about. I was just walking down the high street in Walthamstow and this girl looked at me and screamed. And I'll never forget it and I wonder where she is now because I want to speak to her. But that was the first moment of sort of fan admiration where she looked at me and screamed in the middle of the street and when it's him, it's him and I felt really guilty of something. And, you know, I was like, all right, keep it down, keep it down. They all think I've done something. 90s boy band East 17 songwriter Tony Mortimer. It was mad, you know. It distorts your brain for a while. Girls waiting outside and stuff. It's like, yeah. It makes it interesting going and get a paper in the morning. Bring the body and I'll bring the We never really met crazy fans. We did have crazy moments when the fans would go mental, like when we're on tour and stuff, and we would we would just yeah, let them and encourage it and do what we can to make them go mental because that was what it was all about for that night. So um, um, I, I think if you think fans are crazy in that, that, that's a little misconception. I still talk to a lot of them now. They're solicitors and they you know work in radio and they work on TV and stuff. So it all moves on. I think bands replace something 
for for the teenager in that light uh, at that time when we're teenagers we're looking to sort of rebel and go against our parents and find something to sort of cling on to and I think bands represent that and and we do a good job of being that outlet for them I was I was viewed on like an older brother to them or something or maybe maybe because I'm so old a father figure that you know perhaps they they were looking for Tell me about some of the letters you got from fans any examples of stick in your mind be they very sweet and gentle or the absolute opposite um, no, most of them were very nice. Most of them were very nice. I'd love to say I got lots of filthy ones, but that wasn't really my my role or how they saw me. Um, I mean, we got loads of body parts flashed at us on tour, as you do. You know, girls are out for a good time. You know what it's like. <laughs> we had a I don't lot know what of that. you're saying. Know. <laughs> you know, so you imagine a hen night of of ten girls, it's going to be wild. You imagine a a, a mega hen night of ten thousand girls, it's just chaos. It's absolute chaos. And then you have loads of guys would come to our concerts as well because they respected us as a band, and then they also just looked around and thought, well, it's just women everywhere. You know, I've seen the girls grow out of it. I've seen girls be very obsessed and grow out of it. And I've got an obsessive personality anyway, so I'm on their side. <laughs> I get very obsessed about things and people and stuff. Girls now, what would they be doing if One Direction? There'd be chaos in the world with teenage girls running everywhere, going mad, being obsessed about city, you know, city things. I think I think it contains people and keeps all that energy in a space. It's all right, you know, so long as you don't think that we're going to change the world and stuff like that. I used to hate them at the beginning. I couldn't stand them. Like, whenever people used to go one direction, I'd be like, oh, for What changed sake. your mind, then? I saw Harry's face. That's what changed my mind. <laughs> so it's real love with you and Harry, then? There is, there is. <laughs> so we've had the relationship, Ruth. We've been through that heady time. We know what happens after that, don't we? Sometimes there's heartbreak. But most of the time, we grow up and we move on. Do we ever move on, though, Jude? I don't think I've ever broken <laughs> up with my teenage obsessions, even in my professional career as a music journalist when I've had to interview some of my Britpop idols. I have turned right back into that puddle of 13-year-old hormones on the floor because I think those emotions that you experience as a 13-year-old are of their purest kind, and that's why it hits you again in the pit of your stomach. You can't escape that. You carry this uh, huge freight of memory which can just be triggered by a single line of song or even a single bar of music it's incredibly potent I mean I know we can laugh about how we can remember all all the words but I've been at the Hammersmith Odeon when David Casty was doing a sort of revival concert and the audience was full of women you know my age late 40s early 50s and I looked around and I thought god there's been all this water under the bridge you could see women who'd been battered a bit by life we'd all kind of got through and David Cassidy came on the stage and he said a lot of water has passed under the bridge and then there was this extraordinary kind of 
loving feeling towards him, really, that he'd been, he'd been part of our lives. So I'm getting a new audience now with my new stuff. But they're, they're still there from back in the day. And a lot of them, like I say, are solicitors now and in sort of really high-paid, powerful jobs, which is nice to see how you grow up. And they have families, and now they talk to me about, you know, families and stuff because my kids are a bit older. Thinking about it, I, I have to admit to myself that when, for instance, I was introduced to Adamant at um, a party a couple of years ago, yeah, my reaction was to not say anything for five minutes, run out, call my mum on my mobile, say, you never guess who I've just met. Yes, professional credibility completely out the window. People do say you're not friends, but I guess we are now because I've had 20 years of knowing these people. So it is a different friendship as, as a normal, you know, whatever normal is, but it is a kind of friendship. Because when they see it, they'll see we like one direction. We'll just give them the message, basically, if we're not near them. The teen mania disappears with the teenage years, and people become maturer now and, you know, we're older now. We're beyond sex. <laughs> we're in cups of tea at night. Come on, tell me about your love for One Direction. Why is it, why is it such an amazing feeling to be in love with this band? I don't know. I'm not really in love with them. Oh, I'm in love Mad About the Boy was presented by Ruth Barnes and Jude Rogers. The producer was Eleanor McDowell. It was a Falling Tree production for BBC Radio 4. We'd like to give an extra special thanks to Eleanor McDowell and Alan Hall at Falling Tree for allowing us to share this story with you today. If you're just getting hip to Lost Notes, please check out our entire first season online at kcrw.com lostnotes. And we'll be back with another reissue very soon. Thanks for listening.